welcome to another edition of Cybersecurity Dispatch, where we talk with experts and practitioners who are pushing the envelope in cybersecurity. This is your host, Andy Anderson. In this episode, Uncle Sam is learning new tricks. We talk with Steve Oren, CTO of Intel Federal, and take a deep dive into how government agencies are speeding up and changing their process for adopting new technology. Well, Steve, just introduce yourself, your name, kind of where you're from, you know, company you're with, those sorts of things. Sure. So I'm Steve Warren. I'm the Federal Chief Technologist for Intel Corporation, and I drive our strategy, direction, and technologies working with the government as well as helping the government work with Intel. Awesome. So, you know, everybody seems to have ended up in the world of sort of security in a, in a unique way. So kind of what was your, your path into this space? I started out as a research biologist okay. going all the way back and was going to do something in that field and then had a, an interesting idea back in 95 and did my first security startup okay. before going to med school. And the rest is, as they say, history. <laughs> med school, I, I trust, never really happened. Never happened. <laughs> so I did about four security startups throughout the 90s and early 2000s. And then one of them got acquired by Intel, which okay. is how I ended up here back in 2005. But it's interesting, the, the two benefits of having not come from a classic CS or E background is I don't assume that things work a certain way mm-hmm. because I wasn't taught that that's the way it has to be. And in many cases, it also help, has helped being able to translate what we do in cybersecurity and security in general to audiences that don't have that background. So working on you know with the healthcare organizations around HIPAA and understanding how the security technologies help, I can speak their language. Yeah. Now with things like the genetics research and AI being applied to it, be that trans- Translation function, having some of that background has really helped be able to communicate to multiple domains. Yeah. And I bet that biology background, sort of the interplay of complicated systems and sort of. Absolutely. And we've seen examples of where they've, you know, computer systems and security has been compared to biological right. systems. And now we're in this, in the current world, neuromorphic computing is bringing neuroscience yeah. back to the fore. And so we're seeing modeling chips after brain activity. So it's some, it comes back to haunt you yeah. on a regular basis. We, we certainly steal the terminology viruses and malware Absolutely. and all of these sorts of things, right? That's interesting. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, I, I've seen you kind of talk about is that you're thinking about kind of defining the problems that some of the organizations that you work with, and those tend to be, your focus is really government and particularly the federal government, and sort of bridging that gap between the problems that they have and kind of the new technology that's either out there or potentially kind of coming down the pike. How do you sort of, how does that process work? Well, I think it's, it's part of how I've approached the industry for a long time is that problem solving. But really what it starts with is, is listening. And so, you know, spending time with the customer, spending time with the various agencies and their, the ecosystem that supports them to understand what they're trying to do, some of the challenges they're facing, some of the areas both today their problems are facing, but also where they want to go. In the government space especially, they design things well in advance of actually building them. Yeah. And so getting a feel for what they're actually trying to achieve and talking to multiple customers. So, so what's happening in one agency may be slightly different than another, but you can find those common themes. Yeah. And then understanding the breadth of the technologies, both you know security, but obviously, but also from just the, you know, whether it be compute capabilities, networking, data analytics, and artificial intelligence, and piecing together saying, you know what, if I put something from over here and use this system here in this way, we can actually solve not only the problem that this one agency is having, but the commonality that we're seeing across multiple agencies. 
And really, the nice thing about the working with the government, a lot of times they are a vanguard for the broader industry. Yeah. So a challenge that the government sees today with a drone or with a, a compute system is something that the banks, healthcare, industrial are going to see or are already seeing, but don't necessarily know that they have the problem yet. Yeah. And so we can use those requirements and broaden them to the broader commercial space. And that's been sort of the modus operandi for a long time. One of the big changes that we're also seeing is the government more willing to take commercial systems. Yeah. And so as opposed to being the, you know, everything has to be special for the government, right. they're looking more at how do we take what's already working and scaling in commercial or even consumer use cases, take 80% of that and do the federalization for the last 20% to harden it or to make it work in that mission context. And so we're seeing this two-way street now that we haven't seen for a long time in adopting technologies that are more readily available and quicker time to deployment, but also helping to drive the, the commercial side to get better security, get better performance. Yeah, I mean, it, particularly in security, I mean, it seems like the, the flow of individuals and ideas is also between sort of government, academia, and private industry is more fluid, right, compared to other sort of spheres, right? There's a lot of the funding might be sort of coming from different portions and the people working in them. And we're seeing a lot more of that, you know, whether you call it government industry collaboration, government industry academic collaborations, funding going through universities to commercial entities. Yeah. So we're seeing that both on the engagement on ideas, but also on the actual funding of projects. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is because the recognition that good ideas can come from anywhere. Yeah. And it doesn't need to be a 20-year program to get us to something usable. Yeah, I mean, we've encountered certainly, you know, you sort of see the the sort of wish list come out of an agency. Okay, we're looking for potential solutions here and then who's going to realize that, you know, and where that might come from, from academia or academia morphs into private industry, those sorts of things. And we're seeing a lot more private industry, so sort of separate into two buckets. The big companies like Intel and Microsoft and Amazon and others have a focus on federal and engaging with the commercial capabilities, but also bringing in the smaller companies. And so there's a lot more vehicles or contracts available for small companies to get yep. involved. There's organizations like DUIUX and others that are specifically tasked with go find those innovative companies and help bring them into the DOD. And then there are really cool companies, a couple of them in the Valley, that provide training courses. How can your startup learn how to work with the government? Yeah. And so we're seeing a lot more of that investment because we can't wait for you know some lab to come up with the next big thing. Right. And from the government's perspective, they have needs today. And so they want to be able to do what you know what Silicon Valley does, what New York is doing for the you know business, the high-speed transaction processing yeah. is needed as well. And so you're seeing a lot more openness to engage. And I think we're seeing it from both sides. Yeah. One of the areas I think that I know you've spoken about in the past is, and it's tied in with those issues, is sort of the, the movement to the cloud and sort of whether you're putting resources or data out there and how that kind of process looks. For someone who's not as sort of deeply kind of enmeshed in that space, walk through some of the sort of challenges as well as sort of opportunities there. So the cloud presented some very interesting challenges <laughs> for the government. Um, so most people think, well, of course, the security problem. And yes, that was a huge problem. Yep. How do we secure the cloud? How do you get apply the security controls for data protection for system, the regulations around you know, the STIGs and so forth? How do you apply that to a cloud environment where you don't control and you don't own it? Yeah. And so some of the early stages was you know, hosted private clouds, and that's still an important part of the puzzle. But I think part of what changed was things like FedRAMP and others to help make it easy for cloud providers to provide that. The biggest challenge, especially in the early days, wasn't a technology. It wasn't a security. 
it was the contractual capability. Mm. And uh, typically, you buy a thing. I want to buy a right. phone. I want to buy. So you can't buy a clout. So the whole idea of a subscription model or buying services was not something that, and then being able to deploy it through the process. So also, when the government wants to buy something, it's not just well, I purchase this. There's an accreditation process, and there's authority to operate. And those are documentation, certifications, and tests that have to be done. And if I did it once for one agency, and then I was going to go sell my product or widget to another, start over from scratch, I could use the, the documents, but I have to go through that process again. That doesn't work in a cloud model. And so FedRAMP helped not only provide a framework for the security controls, but also for the contractual mechanisms to enable the adoption of services. And that was a key change that helped the government start to adopt. It also gave the cloud providers the means to figure out how they could take their cloud and make it a GovCloud or you know, Azure for government and these other kind of things. And that worked for the civilian. It worked really well. And we're seeing a lot of adoption by civilian agencies into the cloud and state and local, of course. But then you start looking at things like DOD, which have a higher level of security requirement and separation and segmentation requirements. And so that required a little bit different engineering on the, on the cloud provider side. But I think the opportunity was big enough that we see the GovCloud, we see the Amazon C2S and other implementations of where the cloud providers have done that extra mile and are going through it to get the classifications and clearances they need. And so it's been a two-way street on that. But there's still some fundamental challenges. You have this notion of, I want to be able to protect my data independent of where it's living. I need to be able to apply my security controls into an environment that I no longer control. Even in the hosted, you still could go point to there. There's that data center. And that data center, I have my people sitting there and operating on it. And when you have shared services, we have to figuring out how do I still get that level of security control and visibility was a fundamental challenge. And this is one of the things I worked on for a number of years is being able to use that physical hardware capabilities and be able to implement that into the virtual and cloud domain and sort of bridge that gap to give you visibility, to give you, you know, the term we use is attestation to the environment before you deliver your workload or your data. And that was another key change that once that got adopted, enable people to be more comfortable with these models. We won't see DOD throwing everything into a public cloud. That just won't happen. But the notion of a hybrid cloud and yep. being able to have data in specific community clouds and, and kind of things is definitely happening already and will continue to do so. The next challenge will be as they look to that next stack, so PaaS, SaaS, function as a service, presents unique challenges that they have to be worked through. You know, because again, even in an infrastructure, I still have a thing that I can, you know, my software load is a gold disk. I can put it out there. This is my database. I know where it is. But when you distribute that across multiple services, across multiple systems, again, it's another area of how do I then wrap that with a set of controls? And, you know, sort of a related question, and I'm curious, you know, because this isn't this isn't an area that I've we've had as many conversations about and, and thinking about is, you know, so... An agency, either through FedRAMP or more on the DOD side, kind of has vetted the environment of one of the major cloud providers, right? So AWS or Azure or whatnot. Do you then have the opportunity for some of the sort of smaller startups to piggyback on that? work that's already taken place. So, hey, I have my SaaS solution. It 
normally runs in an AWS environment, can I then deploy it? You know, you, federal agency, are comfortable with that. Can I then create essentially a private deployment, a bespoke deployment of that in that environment? And then I don't have to go through all the hoops and whatnot. So I can give you really two good examples. Yeah. So one is when we worked with IBM Federal, IBM's provider, okay. and then <laughs> being able to build, bring in companies like HITRUST okay. that yeah. provides a, you know, sort of access control, and policy control, and data encryption. Being able to have that run in that environment yeah. as part of an, a service that then can be provided to yeah. the tenants, to the government customers, and so, you know, in that case, it was you know picking very specific set of ecosystem vendors and building the MAM as part of that offering, and then you see others. We see this in the in Amazon and Google and others of where if the application from that SaaS provider passes the appropriate security controls, you still need to have you know, the security controls in your system, yeah. then there's an easy migration path to go from the, the public cloud, assuming you have a government agency that's willing to sponsor it, yeah. or you meet a certain level of, of bare minimum requirements. Yeah. And so we're seeing, I don't think it's advertised as the Amazon marketplace for GovCloud, but there's like an Amazon marketplace for GovCloud, mm -hmm. as well as for Google and others, where ecosystem providers that have done the security controls and can have gone through that certification process right. can now run on that infrastructure and provide their services to government customers as well. And it comes from both directions, either a ecosystem, an ISV wants to get into the gov or wants to have their product run for government. And so they go through the heavy lift or you see an agency say, I need this product and works with them to help get them there. Right. Yeah. And then you, you know, the checklist of what you need to do, just becomes a lot no. shorter. There's still a checklist, but it's not 100, it's 10. Exactly. And the other thing is you can ride on top of the fact that you're running on a federal cloud, so you don't have to go and do a reinspection. You can leverage that certification and that authority to operate. Yeah, very cool. So, you know, talking through this, and you touched upon it a little bit, thinking about sort of bridging that, you know, the digital security and the sort of physical security, kind of how, you know, how are those two worlds kind of coming together and maybe trying to improve each other? So there are a couple of really good examples of this. One is around root of trust and being able to measure and attest the root of trust. So that's a being able to use the physical hardware in an environment to securely boot the system and to then attest to that secure boot and wrap that up in a signed quote, as we call it, that then can be used by the virtualization infrastructure, by the cloud management policy infrastructure to set, to go look and say, before I provision this workload to that particular server or to that group or cluster of servers, I can attest to the security status rooted in hardware and verify that prior to, or I'm going to encrypt something to an environment, I can verify that the key is protected in a hardware TPM yeah. and only will be decryptable on that system that it tested security. And that's a really good example of how those, from just being able to bridge the gap between physical and virtual. Another great example, and this comes up a lot in the current regulations, is sovereignty and geolocation. Yeah. So a data center physically sits within a country, within a data, you know, region, and if you have certain regulations, whether it be some of the European Union regulations, GDPR, or in the case of FISMA, that it has to be based in the U.S., yep. as well as other safe harbor kind of things, you need to know not only is that system secure, but is it in the location that it's supposed to be for me to be able to do that kind of work? And so being able to get location tags embedded into system and attestable, being able to hook up to some of those other systems that are the physical and then be able to communicate them across the digital as part of that attestation. So I know it's a secure server in you know Virginia in the Chantilly data center and then be able to use that as a policy, just like you would when you were saying, I want to only provision to systems that can handle this kind of throughput and this capacity yeah. and have this memory. You can now have these attributes of is the system reporting itself to be still secure? 
and is it in the correct either geolocation or is it in the correct cluster yep. for my policy and use that as just part of the migration or provisioning policies. And we're seeing that as, again, another linkage of the digital and virtual world. Where this gets more interesting is when you get out of the, the big data center side of cloud and you start looking at the tactical cloud and deployed clouds. And so there you're looking at not only can I know that this cloud is secure is in a rack sitting in some, some location in a closet, but also has anything changed on it? Has it been accessed? Being able to get that evidence from not just the actual you know, the software and the boot of that software, but from all the access points yeah. and all the touch points on that system is the firmware secure. Has it been upgraded? And again, it's all part of that attestation to the, the physical and virtual state right. of a given system. And tied in there also, you know, encryption, thinking about kind of is it, where is it encrypted? Is it encrypted in transit? Is it encrypted in rest? Sort of what are those? And does it have the capabilities to support the yeah. at rest, you know, in transit and now in use? Yeah. And does, are the keys that are supporting that protected and, yeah. and, and verifiable? Oh, no, public key exchanges, private key exchanges yeah. is near and dear to your heart. <laughs> Indeed. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting, you, you know, a lot of the things that you have touched upon kind of that, that understanding attestation of where the loads are, the servers are, the encryption piece, as well as control of the data, you know, all of those factors are things we are, we're talking about every day. You know, we spend a lot of time thinking about kind of moving target defense and kind of how, you know, can you change your, your sort of network profile, make the attack service look different and change for an adversary. And so you couldn't do that without a number of the sort of things that you talk about, understanding where things are, what is there, can we attest to them, and then also are things encrypted. And I think that's those technologies of being able to attest to the security state, physical location, and the operational configuration are going to be essential for scaling those sort of software-defined perimeter dynamic defensive measures kind of approaches because they one of the key challenges is that you know it does thwart certain reconnaissance and attack yeah. vectors but if you can't manage something at scale then it doesn't do you any good either yeah. and so be able to build in that i can make these changes and have a dynamic environment but from a management from the the good guy side of the cap i can get that visibility i can attest that this was the, the system and the configuration is what i deployed right. even though that the port may be changing the ip the services that you know where they're hosted can be dynamic and moving around from a management perspective and security management perspective i can get that visibility is going to be how you then you're going to get comfortable to scale that and operate that across multiple nodes and i think those two are going to work hand in hand i see a lot of promise in this yeah. in this dynamic digital perimeter Especially is, is the idea of what it is you're protecting has changed. Yep. It's no longer, well, I've got this big you know, enterprise and I'm going to keep a hard shell on the outside. And then we talked about, well, so there's things coming through, so I'm going to push it with defensive depth. Well, even defensive depth is, is really something that's falling apart now when you have microservices and SaaS where it's no longer even your perimeter to defend. Yep. And so being able to have, not just have a dynamic or soft environment, but have a perimeter that moves with the application and with yep. the data inside and out is ultimately how we're going to try to solve some of the security challenges with these sort of integrated and incorporated services. Yeah, and moves with the teams too. Exactly. Right, you know, that we often are talking with people and thinking about segmentation, right? And it's usually, you know, they've got three categories, like untrusted, trusted, and super trusted. Right? But beyond that, you know, actually implementing things becomes really, really And I think the shift that we should be looking at is moving away from the roles and, again, it's a hard change, but from people and networks yep. to data-driven. 
Yeah. And so since at the end of the day, that's what the attacker is after and that's what's important to the company is the access to and use of that data, the controls we put in place should be dependent on the data. And so the data should be have those classifications. And then it's just a mapping of the role, the network, and the system to map to the data. And we call it sometimes data use controls. Yep. And I think if we take a data-centric approach, that will help us deal with this more dynamic environment because data will, will live wherever it is and data wants to be free. Right. <laughs> and are you starting to see that happen in practice? Are you starting to see either organizations and in, in this business, you never name names, right? But or projects where they're starting to really hone in on you know, where is the data going and how are we protecting it? That sort of focus. So we are definitely seeing, I mean, obviously things like GDPR yeah. and the past ones like HIPAA and others have, have required people to really understand their data, understand what's important, what's PII, what's the, the IP that I want to protect. At the same time, you know, we look in the, in the military and in, in the government, you have things like classification levels. And so we've, it's always been there. Yeah. And I think the current state of the development of the architectures is really driving that we need to get better at how we manage the data lifecycle. And I think one of the things that will also help exacerbate that will be analytics, where the data, you know, it's a good thing I know my data, I know I can create my data. What about the aggregate of that data or the inferencing I got from that data? Right. And so that really starts to stretch of, well, I need to have better controls and metadata around that, that I can then protect its access points. Yeah. And at the same time, be able to get you access to the inference or to the aggregate without getting access to the data. Yeah. And I think those kind of things are really getting people thinking differently. So I think there's a lot of good work that's been done. And I think we're starting to see organizations get smart about how they do data use protections, controls, and access. Mm -hmm. And the answer isn't just encrypt everything. That is part of it, but it's also about how you encrypt it, where you encrypt it, and how you decrypt it. Yeah. And I think it's that full life cycle is really the thing that's going to help change. So we are seeing a lot of folks in government and in the industry look hard and fast at how they're working with data. And because of these things like cloud, we have shared infrastructures and information sharing and shared analytics are really driving them that we have to come up with a better model and are looking at solutions, whether they're coming from the enterprise side around ERM kind of approaches or looking at more at the, the at IoT spaces and looking at things that can be embedded and, and drive around. We're seeing a lot of activity in that space. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious, you know, we're having a lot of conversations, everyone's sort of certainly talking about GDPR and trying to understand kind of how it's implemented. Curious, in your experience, is the, some of the conversations have basically, people are thinking GDPR will in some ways become a worldwide standard, right? Because if you're going to have to comply with what's happening there, it, it's crazy to kind of maintain potentially other standards. So, you know, is that the thinking you're hearing, certainly from your conversations with our government or whatnot? So there are folks that would love to see one standard to rule them all because that means that we have one thing to deal with. I don't think that's reality. I think that what we'll end up seeing is multiple iterations, either existing standards that will adopt GDPR-like facets yeah. or each country, major country, coming up with their own flavor of it. Organizations like they did when PCI and HIPAA and all the other things came out a number of years ago are going to have to manage and deal with that across them. I think one thing to keep in mind is that compliance does not equal security. Right. So even if we had just one standard and we had a good standard, it means that we can document what we did and report it to an auditor. Yep. It still doesn't mean that you're secure against attack or that you've protected the data. It means that you adhere to a set of requirements that were to come up in a consensus. And I think that's a misnomer that GDPR is going to drive you know, security. It's going to drive a lot of product sales for some, a lot of companies. But I think if we use that as an opportunity to, to go back and look at our data, because again, GDPR is really about the data. If we go back and use that as an opportunity to say, well, how would we, you know, for independent of the GDPR, 
we're going to have to protect our data better, it gives us that opportunity to yeah. take another look. But as far as you know, one standard, because it's the EU and there's a lot of companies that are multinational, I think a lot of organizations are going to have to adopt it. And I think what you'll find is that it's a, it's a subset of a broader set of regulations. And so there's going to be, at least for now, there's going to be multiple regulations. And then just when we get to figure that out, there'll be a new one that we'll have to come compliant to in the future. Progress recedes like a horizon line. <laughs> you know, I've been peppering you with questions. You know, you've got a soapbox. What do you want to talk about? What's the sort of, what are you sort of thinking about, wish the sort of community was was more kind of aware of these days? I think there are two things that are sort of keeping me sort of engaged on some new things. One is around how do we secure this artificial intelligence machine learning yeah. environments and understanding the complexity of that full life cycle. I think that's an exciting area that we've only just started to understand the different aspects of protecting the training, the inferencing, the analytics and cognitive side, and then the actuation or visualization and understanding that those are different systems with different parties involved. Some of them we have more control over than others. Some of the system capabilities, what you have in a data center on your training side, what you have in a, a camera that's doing the inferencing are very different. Yeah. And so I think there's a lot of exciting work that needs to be done on how do we secure the AI because so, the, the fact is these are starting to make real decisions. Yeah. And I don't think we have good visibility into what went into training it to recognize person, truck, tree, and how then the feed affected that outcome. That is one of the things that are near and dear to me is how we start securing that. Another key area is looking at the overall, you know, the way that systems are actually getting deployed. And we're seeing, you know, very complex backend data center, cloud services, all the way talking to the very edge and understanding how do we get the best, the right security in the right place. I know it sounds like a little bit of hygiene, which it is. Yeah. But the idea that I, you have your laptops and data center and that's the only thing you have to care about, that should be a gone notion. You have to worry about the entire enterprise that includes the devices, the sensors, the components that are all connecting either directly or indirectly into your network or that you're relying upon for mission critical systems. And the complexity there and the challenge of what I can do on my laptop with the fully capable and what I can do in a, a phone, which is somewhat capable, and what I can do in a, you know, a smart meter are very different things. Yeah. And I need to do the right amount of security, good enough. Right. But that still protects me. And I think that's an area where we're seeing a lot of interest of what is the right approach. Do I make the smart meter the most secure thing on the planet? Do I put a gateway in place? Do I aggregate the security? And so how do we get those the evidence and the controls deployed throughout that complex organization? And I think if you see the theme there, I like complex systems. Yeah, right. I mean, we had some scary conversations about IoT devices earlier today. And what's there and what's broken is... Yeah, and as you think of, they're all in the same network, right? And it's great if you've secured the things that you're, you know, more aware of, more exactly. thinking about, but you can't even patch, let alone have visibility into some of those devices. It's really a challenge, right? Exactly. It's like, what do you do when you're being DDoSed by your refrigerator, right? <laughs> We've all seen the Silicon Valley, like, incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Steve, this has been great. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. This was really, you know, such a covered so much, so much ground and, and different things. You know, we'd love to have you back anytime. Absolutely. Um, awesome. Thanks so much.